The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Whether you're a Wayne Dyer fan, a Ram Dass fan, or just curious about spirituality, this episode has something for everyone. If you heard my episode that I recorded with Dasima, this is one of her good friends, as well as a close friend of Ram Dass since the 1970s. We're talking about grief and meditation. He shares a very funny story about how he first met Dr. Wayne Dyer and some incredible memories from his time on Maui. John Welshon's big warm heart and a deep sense of grace will definitely leave you feeling inspired. I'm so excited that I get to share this beautiful guest and this conversation that meant so much to me with all of you today. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Dela Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community. My guest this week is a beloved meditation teacher who has been a student of world religions throughout his life. His teachings weave together the mystical and contemplative aspects of the world's great spiritual traditions. He trained with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and spent much time working with friends like Ram Dass and Stephen Levine since the 1970s. His workshops and retreats often focus on terminally ill patients and people in grief. Dr. Wayne Dyer wrote the foreword to his book, Awakening from Grief, Finding the Way Back to Joy, which we'll be talking about today. John Welshans, thank you so much for joining me today. Nadia, thank you so much for inviting me. What a pleasure to be with you. So the first thing I want to tell you is that this book, Awakening from Grief, was the book I bought when my father died in 2019. That was the biggest loss I have experienced in my life. I was definitely looking for a different perspective maybe than what I was receiving in the world around me. And um, in fact, this was the only book that I bought on grief. Uh, So it is quite an honor uh, to bring it kind of full circle and get to sit down and have this conversation with you today. Oh, thank you. Wow. Well, it's an honor for me, Nadia. And, uh, you know, Wayne's blessing on that book was such a precious gift to me. He was always Mm -hmm. so warm and gracious and kind to me. And, you know, really, I think we share a great affection for him. Yeah. When did you first meet Dr. Wayne Dyer? Well, that's an interesting story. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what we're here for. That's perfect. I met him briefly at a workshop that he did in Princeton, New Jersey. 
back mm -hmm. in, I would guess, the early 90s. And um, in uh, 1979, I was going through the breakup of a terrible relationship. And, uh, you know, it was one of those that should have broken up like years earlier, but we stuck it out. And it was just awful. And um, my former partner was reading your erroneous zones. And ah. every time I saw the book, I just hated the book and I hated Wayne Dyer because I had a feeling that she was reading the book to help her get the courage to leave, right? And so her final uh, coup de grace <laughs> was the day that she was packing up and moving out. She packed all her books, everything in the car. And uh, she came up one last time for one last look to see if everything was gone. And then she had your erroneous zones in her hand and she threw it at me. <laughs> and she said, I'll clean this up. She said, you're such a jerk. Why don't you read this book? It might help you. And off she went. And that was the last I saw of her for a year, I think. But um, anyway, so that was, I think it was 1979. And... Ultimately, Nadia, you know, I did read it. I picked it up. I had already been very connected with Ram Dass and uh, not yet with Stephen Levine, but I had studied with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. But my relationship skills needed some polishing. And uh, so one day, maybe a month or two later, I picked up Your Erroneous Zones and I started reading it. And I just got captivated. I thought, this is such a great book, you know, and I didn't expect that. And um, then I started to realize, you know, Wayne Dyer is not just a psychologist. He's a spiritual teacher. So fast forward, I meet him briefly at a workshop in the early 90s. And then in 1999, just before Awakening from Grief was published, um, one day I had the thought to call Wayne and ask him for an endorsement. And um, I was talking with a man who at the time was a very popular and famous motivational speaker who seemed to know everybody. So I called him up and I said, do you, do you know Wayne Dyer? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, do you know how I could get in touch with him? So he said, I'll find out. Next day, his secretary calls me and she says, here's Wayne Dyer's phone number. Now, I'm thinking that it's his office, you know, and yeah. I'm going to talk to a secretary or something like that. So I call the number. There's no answer. There's no voicemail. There's no nothing. It just rings and rings and rings and nothing. I keep calling every now and then for about two months. One day, the phone is answered, and I hear someone whose voice sounds very familiar say, hello. And I went, oh, my God, that's Wayne Dyer. <laughs> so I said, Wayne? <laughs> and he said, uh, yes, who's this? And I said, well, my name is John Welshans, and I'm calling you. Um, and I mentioned the person who gave me his phone number. And I said, you know, I'm a friend of his. And he gave me your phone number and he mentioned this person's name and he said, how on earth 
did that person get my phone number? <laughs> so I, I said, I don't know, but, you know, I don't want to bother you. So if, you know, we can just hang up right now if you want to. And he said, no, no, no. Why did you call? So I started to tell him about the book, about Awakening from Grief. And he listened and he was a little bit, you know, understandably um, not defensive, but, you know, he said, John, you know, let me tell you something. Uh, he said, John, you know, I think everybody in the world is writing a book. I right now at this moment am looking at a stack of several stacks of probably 200 manuscripts sitting in my office that people want me to read and endorse. And I just can't read them all. And I said, I understand. You know, it's fine. I said, uh, you know, but thank you for your time. And somewhere I mentioned Ramdas without any particular intention. And, and Wayne says to me, you know Ramdas? <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, oh my God, how is he? Because this was, you know, not too long after his stroke, maybe two years after the stroke. And um, he goes, I love Ramdas. He's like my greatest hero. I didn't know that. So uh, anyway, uh, then he said, then the heavens opened. And then he said, send me your manuscript. I'll do my best to take a look at it. I did. And uh, like three days later, uh, a fax, the fax machine sprang to life. And here comes a fax from Wayne with an endorsement for the book. And then when we did the second version, which was about three years later, I asked him if he'd be willing to write the introduction and or the preface forward, I guess it's called. <laughs> and he said, sure. In the meantime, I had met him. I'll just tell you one other wonderful story about him. I went up to meet him uh, at a workshop in Los Angeles. And uh, when I introduced myself, he went, oh, John, I love your book. And he gave me a big hug and he said, do you have any with you? And I said, well, I have some in the trunk of my car. He said, uh, go get them, put them on the book table next to my books, and we'll sell them. And I sold like 100 books that day at his workshop because then he stood up on stage and he held it up and he said, you know, buy this book. And, of course, everybody says, Wayne Dyer says, buy the book, I'll buy the book. <laughs> so yeah. that was the kind of person he was, you know, just extraordinarily kind and gracious. And uh, that, that was, I guess that was our first real meeting at that workshop in Los Angeles. But I saw him many times after that on Maui, um, sometimes with Ram Das. you know, he'd come over and visit or he would go out to dinner with us or whatever. Wonderful. One time I just, yeah, the... him, I was jogging on the, the footpath in front of his condominium at Kanapali Beach. And mm -hmm. uh, I knew he lived there, but uh, I was staying down the beach and, um, you know, just out for a jog. And I called him. We thought we might meet a few days later. Then I'm jogging and here he comes walking down the beach <laughs> along the path. You know, so we had a nice greeting then. So those are some of my Wayne stories. You know, what's interesting to me uh, many things about the story you just shared. But one of the things is that when you read Euronius Zones, which was his first book, that you recognized him as a spiritual teacher. And I'm not even sure if he had recognized that in himself yet. Well, I mentioned that to him, Nadia, when I first met him. 
And he said, he said, you were right, but I didn't know that at the time. But it, to me, it came through his writing, you know, because while he was a psychologist, but I could feel the, something much deeper than most psychology. Which is probably why he loved Ramdas so much, too. I mean, he definitely saw him as a, a mentor, an example, and eventually a, a good friend. But it, it started out with him just really admiring Ramdas's work. Yeah. I mean, he told me he used to go see Ramdas whenever he gave a lecture that, that Wayne could see when Wayne was like a graduate student. And, you know, he'd try to sit in the front row. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dossie and I, uh, Dossie Ma and I talked about that a little bit when I spoke with her earlier this year. I know you, you two are good friends mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was surprised that Wayne Dyer was an early influence for her because uh, I met her when we went to Maui and I ended up at Hanuman Maui, which was just amazing. Oh, um... But, um, but you know, they're like, oh, who are you? And, you know, I was like, oh, I run the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community. And they're like, oh, we love Wayne Dyer. And uh so to hear that, she she actually discovered Ram Dass second. She discovered Wayne Dyer first. Uh -huh. So even though she was his primary caretaker for so long, that there was connection there too. And both of them, for whatever reason, Dr. Wayne Dyer and Ram Dass, hold such a special place in my heart. They've, they, they've brought me to um, levels of understanding and compassion that I'm not sure I would have found my way to otherwise. And But they, they kind of... Um, it hits me in different places. Like I say, Ram Dass um, enters through the heart and then gets to my mind, and Wayne Dyer goes through my mind and gets to my heart. Oh, I um, like that. Yeah, because <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about you know what. Well, what is it about these two? Because they're both so significant to me. Um, but it was the words really that started me with Wayne Dyer. But it was this feeling with Ram Dass, and then it's like this feeling of grace and what, what is that? And I think it, it awakens something that, that loves something in me. So it's neat that there, I mean, we're all connected, right? But, but so many people feel this connection that I do and exploring it is one of the great joys of my life. Um, but I would love to read part of, I'm sorry. I, I, yes, that's a great question. I did meet Ram Dass once. Um, and that was at a Wayne Dyer conference on Maui in, I believe it was 2007. It was the first time he had held a conference at the Westin there um, before he was always traveling, traveling. And he's like, well, you guys can come to me. And I was like, Dr. Wayne Dyer in Hawaii, because I already loved Hawaii. Uh, um, I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so that was his first, that was his first one. He made an annual thing and, and he had... Ramdas there, which admittedly at the time I didn't know a lot about. Right, right. I knew he was significant. I was captivated by the talk that he gave and how funny he was. Um, but I, it was really after that that I started diving into the recordings of his talks and his books and everything. So yeah, that was my one meeting. I actually was there. Ramdas, you were there. We were staying at Ramdas's oh. house, and you know he and Das. He said, "Well, we're going over to see Wayne today, and and Wayne's going to have Ramdas speak to his group." And so we traveled over to Kanapali, and uh, uh, I was amazed at how he affected the group, because you know if that was two thousand seven, I had known him for 
um, 45 years at that, or 35 years at mm-hmm. that point. And, um, you know, I mean, it was sort of, it was just Ramdas up on stage. I loved seeing him, when, you know, for all 35 years. It wound up being almost 50 years that I knew him. But uh, to see Wayne's group just so enraptured by him was just wonderful. Yeah. I remember at one point he held a meditation and um, he had just come off of a year of studying the Tao Te Ching. And to me, he was the most centered that I've ever seen him. And he always inspired me, but there was something different. There was a depth to his experience, to his presence, the way that he showed up. You know, it was, it just, it felt a little bit slower and deeper and he was also excited about um, his next project, which was Excuses Be Gone. So he wanted to practice some of his techniques for overcoming self-defeating thought patterns. But mostly we were there to talk about the Tao, change your thoughts, change your life, <laughs> living the wisdom of the Tao. Um, and at one point he held this guided meditation. And so the whole audience, I don't know what we were, maybe 200 people or something, We all sit there and we close our eyes and Wayne gets into this space and he starts this guided meditation. And I just felt this wave of energy that washed over the room. And I actually opened my eyes and I was like, like, did anybody else just feel that? I don't think I said it. I wasn't going to interrupt the meditation, but I'm looking around like, did anybody else just feel that? Because it's like he, he was so practiced at that point of getting into that space of coming into alignment with that heart space, that it was like, it was a tactile sort of palpable experience for me. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Um, but it was an amazing weekend. I, I love being there. And it's so fun to hear that you were there. And I know I was Dawson there. was there too. In fact, we went back. Yeah. I don't know if it was the next year or two years later or what, but um, we went back another time. Ramdas, I think maybe did three or four altogether with Wayne, but at, at, Mm-hmm. In Maui, but I went back with him another time, and that time I remember Wayne was, was struggling with his health and um, not feeling real good. Although you wouldn't have known when he was up on stage, he was just fine. Yeah, I know he had a lot of neck and back pain. Yeah. Was that one of the things that he was dealing with at the time? Of course, he had his leukemia diagnosis too, but um, I'm really not sure how much that impacted how he felt from day to day because yeah. I don't think that's something that we heard a lot about yeah he didn't seem to complain you know and um, I do remember that day he was having neck pain and um, stomach issues so mm. he, uh, he invited us to have lunch with him backstage and he had this you know wonderful feast set up for about 10 people but he couldn't eat much. He had to go over in the corner of the room and, and uh, lie down and a uh, body worker who was there was working on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was amazed when I saw him come back after lunch and just, you know, seem fine. But uh, Pop back up in front of the audience. And, and I saw Ramdas yeah. do that a number of times. Um, you know, after his stroke... He had a lot of physical discomfort and physical complications. And sometimes he'd come down in the morning 
And I'd look across the room at him, and he'd be, you know, sitting in his wheelchair at the breakfast table and just kind of slumped down and looking. I'd say, you okay, Ramdas? And he'd just say, a really bad night, you know. But then somebody would come to the house to see him, and the doorbell would ring, and somebody would go answer the door and say, oh, you know, Ramdas, that's so-and-so coming to see you. And I'd turn and look at him, and suddenly... His face was full of color. His eyes were bright, you know, and he was all like, robbed us. And they'd come in and, you know, he would never let on that he was struggling and suffering. It was quite amazing. Mm -hmm. It must be a lot of pressure to have so many people um, wanting to see you, you know, showing up for a talk. I, I can't remember exactly where I heard it from, but I remember Wayne Dyer talking about one time, I think he was getting ready to record a PBS special and the, the audience is all out there and he was in terrible pain that he actually ended up on the floor and he like couldn't move. And he was asking for his wife, Marcy, even though they were separated at the time, because she was the one who could like calm him down and, and, and help him to feel better. But I can just imagine the pressure of sort of being that famous, I guess, and wanting to serve and wanting to show up, but we're all human. And so we have our good days and our bad days. And, you know, it's like, if I have to cancel something, it's not affecting that many people. But if you're Wayne Dyer or Ram Dass and you have to cancel something, and, you know, like, like Wayne was saying, you know, there was millions of dollars resting on his ability to show up for this. Everything that was set up in place, you know, if they had to stop it, a lot would be lost. So I wonder if, like, I, I think it was a combination of kind of wanting to fulfill that. But also, I think the, the audience would bring something out in him that would energize him and sort of he would respond in kind. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the guru that Mahara that uh, Ramdas met in India, we call Maharaji. His name was Neem Karoli Baba. But I have had many times in my life where um, I'm feeling like I can't do it. And I just have to turn to Maharaji and say, I need your help because I can't do this. And then, you know, mm. there it is. So, you know, I always felt, and Ramdas really always felt that, uh, like, when I first met him, he would say to people who would come up and say, you know, I, I was just so blown away by your lecture, and I've never felt anything like that before. And Ramdas would just say, if you feel that coming from me, that means Maharaji loves you. Don't oh. <laughs> don't blame it on me <laughs> or don't give me. Don't credit. get it twisted. This is coming from the source, that's right? right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. And, and Maharaji had his own health issues, didn't he? Well, um, I guess. <laughs> um, I never met Maharaji. So, uh, oh. you know, uh, I heard about him through Ram Dass in uh, 1971. And then I met Ram Dass in 73. As soon as I met Ram Dass, I made arrangements to go to India to meet Maharaji. But he died mm -hmm. before I got there. So uh, I missed him in that form. Um, I mean, he was, uh, he was a mysterious, enigmatic human being. So uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, and he died, I think he maybe was 73 years old when he died, but nobody was really mm-hmm. sure. You know? <laughs> it was a little confusing. <laughs> He's a bit of a mystery, but yeah, he left, uh, he left quite an impression, didn't he? That is he still making waves today. He did. Yeah. Waves of love. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I wanted to read part of the foreword to your book, Awakening from Grief. Sure. Can you believe it's been 20 years? Like, that's just mind-blowing how time just keeps moving. Blink um, of an eye. Blink of an eye, yes, um, but all in perfect timing. So Dr. Wayne Dyer's foreword, I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says, I recall my first conversation with John Welshans in which he told me about the book he had just written, Awakening from Grief. While I was intrigued by the idea of finding the way back to joy in moments of deep disappointment and sorrow, I was just as impressed with the man himself. We talked about our mutual friend and mentor, Ram Dass, and when I hung up the phone, I said to myself, this is a man who walks his talk, who lives his passion, and if I can ever be of assistance in his work, I would be honored. And he carried through with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so neat having heard that story from you directly <laughs> of how you called him on his phone number. And he's like, you know, I got a lot of books here. And you can imagine a lot of people wanted something from yeah, him. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, to this day, I don't know how we got his home phone number, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was a miracle. I guess so. Yeah. So you mentioned, okay, so, uh, Nadia, I was going to ask, you mentioned that that book was mm-hmm. helpful to you when your father died. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about that? Well? Yeah. So, so my father died in April of 2019. And I've talked about it frequently, probably on this podcast, because it's something that's ever present with me, of course. In a way, it's also something that drives me. Um which is interesting in the context of talking about grief, because I think it did bring me to an awareness of the preciousness of life and how fleeting it can be. And it made me feel a little bit more courageous to do some of the things that scare me and to live while I'm here. Um, But I was receiving so many messages. um, So I'm going to read a quote here because this one really touched me and it's from the book and it says, Every time people have said to us, don't cry, be strong, keep a stiff upper lip, don't think about that, let's talk about something more pleasant, here, have a drink, you'll feel better, they have taught us not to grieve. And boy, was I hearing a lot of those messages, and it did not sit right in my body at all. And I'm one of these people who I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. I feel things deeply. I've always been more sensitive. I used to think it was a curse. It took me a long time to figure out it was a gift. There's so many gifts that come with that. But it just felt intolerable to me to stuff it all down and pretend it wasn't there and pretend it didn't happen. So that time was a bit of a blur, honestly. And I can't tell you for certain why this was the one book that I bought on Amazon about grief. Um, But I think it was how open and honest and courageous you were about the truth of the human experience. And that's something that I have always been drawn to without maybe even understanding why, but like, you know, let's get real about 
what life is. Mm-hmm. Well, that really was Ramdas's influence. You know, in all the years I knew him, um, that's so much what he was about, is facing life directly and clearly, not sugarcoating it, not pretending that it's other than it is, and recognizing that there are these seasons of life, I've been calling them recently, but phases of our lives that we go through, and we're going to have losses, and we're going to have disappointments. And um, that's just inevitable, you know? I mean, even Wayne Dyer, with all of his wonderful success, you know, had losses and disappointments. And I think we lose sight of that in this culture. So, and, you know, there's so little preparation for any of it. And um, so it was really Ramdas. You know, people have said to me what you just said, you know, you're so courageous to write this book in the way you did. And to me, it wasn't courageous. It was just honest, you know, and I guess it takes courage to be honest. But at this point in my life, not so much because I realize, you know, that line in the Bible, It says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think I wrote in Awakening from Grief that in one of my early interactions with Ram Dass, when we were just coming out of the 60s and the 70s, you know, and and we had ways of getting high, (laughs) which many of us had sort of renounced by that point. But he said, you want to get really high? You want to get really high? Try living in truth. Mm. Very scary. But, you know, it's just a fascinating and I would say even glorious way to live. And um, not, you know, in a, you, you learn to handle it judiciously and prudently. Like sometimes people mistake living in truth for saying whatever they comes into their mind or what they think and winding up hurting people's feelings and, you know, not being particularly kind. So in that case, I just like to apply that wonderful formula. Before you say something, ask yourself, is it kind? Is it true? And is it necessary? But, you know, Ramdas and I used to sit and look in each other's eyes as a meditation. And he did this with a lot of people, but we would sit and look in each other's eyes until we established this really pristine, beautiful connection through meditation. And then he would start asking a question. And the question was, if there's anything you can bring to mind, which would be difficult, embarrassing, or uncomfortable for you to share with another human being, share it. (laughs) Now, that's not typical mode of conversation in our culture, you know. And what he was doing ultimately was, you know, we go through this exercise, his eyes would never flicker, and you could feel that his love never flickered. So you tell him like the worst thing you'd ever done or ever thought, and he'd go, right, I hear all that. And here we are. The world didn't come to an end. Now, if there's anything difficult, embarrassing, or uncomfortable that you can share with another human being, share it. 
And, you know, we just go through it and through it until finally, you know, I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> you know, it was, and it, I realized it was a kind of purification that um, was what probably the Roman Catholic Church was, was endeavoring to do with confession. But it didn't quite work the same way, you know, with Ramdas. It was just like um, he or Stephen Levine started to call the practice the eater of impurities. So it was just like that another human being would, would bear witness to your stuff and not judge you for it. And he did that because mm -hmm. that was the experience he had with Maharaji in India. Yeah. Maharaji loved him unconditionally. And um, it didn't matter. And Maharaji knew everything about him. And he still loved him. Yeah, I think that kind of love he described as the most transformative. And it sounds like really that practice he was doing with you is an, an emptying of shame and guilt. Yeah. Like, just, just let it all out, put it here on the table. It sounds so much like what they do in a lot of the 12-step programs, like AA, right? Yeah. And I adore that level of honesty. I am really drawn to people who are like, you know what? This is it. The, you know, this is my story. This is how I really feel. Instead of trying to keep those masks on all the time of, oh, I'm fine and life is good and la, 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 that sort of... Um, forced positivity is really hard for me to swallow. But when we talk about truth, I see it less of a verbal expression and more as a commitment to trying to see and meet life as it really is. You know, how do I really feel in this moment? Um, how do I really feel about my relationships or my life or what am I really thinking about? Um, and I know, of course, you are a teacher of meditation. And I think when, when we get to that um, topic of mindfulness, it's observing what the mind is doing. And only if we have some awareness of what's, what's feeding all these feelings and experiences that we're having, do we have any hope of, of doing anything about it? Yeah, that's right. That's it. It's, um, you know, as you alluded to, the culture trains us not to do that. You know, don't think about it. Don't look at it. Don't, you know, pretend it's not happening. And I came to this realization, Nadia, a number of years ago. Uh, I started teaching, I started doing meditation in 1968. And I started teaching it in, uh, I think, 75. And a few years into teaching meditation, it started to become clear to me that everybody who came to meditation class was secretly thinking that they were uniquely insane. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they would sit there and, you know, look, you know, and why did you come to meditation class? Oh, I'm a little stressed out, right? Or... Uh, <laughs> One woman, I've always remembered this expression. I said, what brought you here? She said, I suffer from brain race. So I thought, well, that's a great expression. Oh. But, uh, you know, the truth is that all our minds are like that. They're just chaotic. One teacher said they're like a screaming, barreling 
madhouse on wheels. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's the way the human mind is. It's uh, chaotic. It's judgmental. Uh, it's not rational. You know, we have to learn to think rationally. We have that ability, and so we call ourselves rational beings. But the human mind is not inherently rational. You know, the human mind is full of fears, irrational stuff, um, you know, all sorts of crazy thoughts that just come into your mind and you think, oh God, if I think that, I must be an awful human being. But it almost, I started to see my own mind as like a compost <laughs> heap, you know, it was just generating compost all the time from the subconscious, from previous incarnations, from fears and desires and and it doesn't make sense. So it's really a, uh, I think, a misunderstanding to think that enlightenment happens in the mind. It happens when the mind is quiet. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really the arising of the recognition of our own true nature. So it's something that's always with us. You know, there is, we don't lose enlightenment. It's one of the things that I really liked about the, the Zen training, um, mm -hmm. which is that most spiritual paths are seen as a, an ascent up a mountain, sort of, you know, that image is used often. But in Zen, they just say, no, your job isn't to become enlightened. Your job is to stop pretending you aren't. Because you have all yeah. of the raw material, you got everything you need to be enlightened. There's a part of you that already is. And when you look at that place in yourself where you were, even as a child, you said a few minutes ago, not feeling comfortable in this world, in this, the perspective that most people are feeding you in this world, you know, I think that's usually an indication you're an old soul and you've been through this a number of times and um, you've got more perspective on it than most people have. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You know, it's interesting because I was just a teenager when I heard Dr. Wayne Dyer speaking on PBS. I think I was watching it with my dad at the time. Uh -huh. I'm not even sure who turned it on. But at some point, I just became fascinated. And when I think back on that, it seems so strange that at this time in my life, when I was arguably more concerned with friends and clothes and boys and, you know, getting into college and whatever else was coming up next in my life, why was I so interested in this kind of self-help, spiritual conversation, um, and I honestly don't know. I, I think it just hit something that was that I was in alignment with, and I carried it with me for the rest of my life. 
And I still think it's a little bit bizarre because so often people will come to that later after they've had more experience in life and they find things are a little bit unfulfilling and they're like, okay, I'm looking, I'm, I'm moving into this stage of meaning. But for me, it hit me so young and I'm actually really grateful for that now. Uh, because I had that sort of um, guiding force. You know, the first the first one was Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. He I read that book parents. in high school. He, 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 what was he, that? He married my parents. He presided at their... He married your parents. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world, let me tell you. So... Wow. Um, Norman Vincent Peale. So I remember having this book as a teenager. And that was the first time that I received the message that you could have any control over your thoughts at all. I really thought it was just this runaway train that you couldn't do anything about. You just tried to have good intentions. And that behavior was everything. And Norman Vincent Peale was the one who planted that seed that said, you know what, um, there's more going on to these thoughts. And you have more influence over this than you think. And then along came Wayne Dyer. So I had been primed for that. Mm -hmm. So when he's talking about the potential of your life, nobody had told me every time everybody talked about, you know, fear and limitations. And this is this is what you can expect. And, you know, don't set your sights too high. And he was giving me a very different message. And um, I don't know, maybe I would have found it one way or another. But that was that was the doorway for me. You would have. You know, but that was the doorway for you. And, mm -hmm. uh, how did you get hold of the book, the Power of Positive Thinking? Gosh, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know if I got it from the library or I or I bought it. I I, I think it had a blue cover. I remember seeing it in the house. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I had, that's a very good question. Maybe it fell from the sky. I don't know. It was just <laughs> sometimes they do when you need a message. It comes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My dad yeah. gave it to me. And um, mm. along with another book, because he was in AA, and uh, mm -hmm. that book was very popular in AA. And also uh, Emmett Fox, a wonderful teacher named Emmett Fox, who wrote a number of books, but the most popular was called The Sermon on the Mount, which mm -hmm. just his metaphysical interpretation of The Sermon on the Mount, and just a beautiful book. So might check one, that one out sometime too. Mm -hmm. I will. I have not read that one yet. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting how all of these connections, they overlap so much and bring us, and bring us together. Um, now in the book, you talk about many of your own experiences with loss um, of varying kinds from a young age. But, but why grief? So, so you studied world religions, which is fascinating to me. Um, I think I would love, I have not studied that in college, but I think that is a program I would love to explore because it's something I'm very curious about. So you studied world religions and then you end up basically spending all of these years talking about grief and loss. And so, so why grief? What is it that um, motivated you to serve in this way? Wow, what a great question. Uh, again, it was largely Ramdas who um, sort of, he always worked as a kind of conduit who wove together the different elements of my consciousness and my life. 
Now, my mother had died when I was 18 in 1969, and she was 55. And she died at home, and there, in those days, 1969, no one had ever heard the word hospice. No one knew what that meant. You know, it, it wasn't a concept that existed in our culture. And if someone was dying, they certainly wouldn't be brought home unless the family was very poor and they couldn't afford to have them in a nursing home or hospital. My mother wanted to come home. And um, the story is in Awakening from Grief, but it was basically the doctor advised against it. He said too much of a burden on the family, but it wasn't. You know, she was in our house. And at first we were all kind of freaked out. But then, you know, I started to spend time with her, sitting with her, holding hands, looking in her eyes the way that I later would look in Ramdas's eyes. And I started to see this tremendous light in her. And one day I was sitting on her bed, holding her hand, looking in her eyes. We didn't, she couldn't speak because she had a brain tumor. So she was aphasic, which meant she, you know, her, her speech was impacted. So we were just silent together looking in each other's eyes, holding hands. I see this light in her, Nadia, and I had the thought, that's the part of her that isn't going to die. And when I had that thought, she squeezed my hand, smiled, and nodded, like, you got it, kid. <laughs> you got it. And, you know, she died like a day or two later, um, but it was such a powerfully transformative experience for me that I really had almost no grief about her death. And um, that was fascinating. You know, I, I was so happy about what we had shared together that it was hard for me to drum up, you know, some kind of woe is me, you know, because we had connected in a way that, everybody would yearn to connect with their parents, you know, in just a moment, just a glimpse, just seeing that. So that was in the back of my mind, but there was nothing in the culture that, that supported that until I met Ramdas. And I met Ramdas in 1973, and he had been spending a lot of time with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was, you know, a psychiatrist who, from Switzerland, who was a wonderful, saintly being, and um, he mentioned that, and he said that he and Elizabeth at the time were planning to start a center together and work together. And I was so fascinated by it. He said during his lecture in 73 that he was finding being with people who were dying and people who were grieving to be the highest spiritual practice he had ever come upon. And I went up to talk to him about that. I said, you know, I'm a little puzzled by that. We talked a little bit and he talked about Elizabeth and then he said, well, why don't you go see her? So I did. And it wasn't, it was about three years later when I finally had the opportunity to see Elizabeth at a big conference in Berkeley, California. And um, what struck me at that conference was there were 2000 people there talking about the thing that we were never supposed to talk about and everybody looked happy. <laughs> and I thought, this is bizarre, you know, and it was like everybody felt this weight lifted off their shoulders, like we can finally speak truth. 
And um, so that was the beginning. I was really impressed by that. And then, you know, Ramdas continued to do the work. He was kept continued to influence me in that way. And then ultimately introduced me to Stephen Levine. And that was really his work. And um, so that's, you know, it's not the only thing I do, but uh, it's certainly been a uh, significant guidepost in my life. And it's a, it's a significant reminder because I'm often working with people who are dying who are younger than me, you know? So it's, and it, it caused me at a certain point to start realizing that there is a truth that we often ignore. And I like to bring that truth into my daily meditation for about 30 years now. In my morning meditation, as I'm coming out of meditation, I add in the following reflection. And I say to myself, this could be my last day on earth or the last for someone I love. In light of that, how do I want to spend it? What do I want to fill my mind with? Do I want to be loving and generous and kind or do I want to be cranky and selfish? You know, and, and the answers come pretty quickly. If you realize, geez, this could be my last day. How do I want to spend it? And it could be. That's the that's the fascinating thing about it. And, and I'm saying that not out of pessimism or negativity. That's the truth of our human life. Not one of us has any idea how long we've got to live in these bodies. And I think if we think about it more instead of thinking about it less, it wakes us up, you know? I mean, in, in some sense, you start to realize you don't have time to be depressed and, and carrying on about how terrible things are because you need to look around and see how beautiful things are around you. I'm not discounting that people have tremendous suffering and problems in their lives, but if you focus on that solely, you miss so much beauty, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was really what brings you. Go ahead. What brings you joy? Talking to you, <laughs> being with you, uh, talking about truth, talking about God, talking about love, being in love. Um, I think the natural beauty. We were talking about the view that we have from our condominium here on the hill in New Jersey, and it's just breathtaking, mm-hmm. and we see these sunsets every night that are just mind-boggling in New Jersey, you know? I mean, they're as good as sunsets over the Pacific Ocean. So, uh, yeah, natural beauty and love, I think, are the main, if I had to pick two. If I have to pick Mm -hmm. one, I have to go with love. (laughs) Love, yeah. Well, that really covers it all, love. Yeah. The reason why I ask you that is because you have spent so much time contemplating the the truth and the reality that we are all going to die one day and that you have that in your daily meditation. And, and what we've learned um, from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and, and Stephen Levine and Ram Dass and and you and others is that if we can see things as they are, and embrace our mortality instead of hiding from it and running from it, which is impossible, that 
it can enrich our experience of life. Uh, One of the quotes from your book says, in teaching us to avoid the unpleasant and encouraging us to deny the inevitable, our culture has robbed us of many, many precious opportunities to gain a deeper, more immediate sense of who we are and what our lives are all about. I wrote that? (laughs) You wrote that. Or it came through you. (laughs) It came through me. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's Mm -hmm. the best writing, I think. Wayne knew that, too. You know, mm-hmm. talk about. He said, "God writes all the books and builds all the bridges." He used to wake up at three thirty in the morning or something, and you know, can mm-hmm. I go back to sleep? And the voice would say, "No, get up and write." <laughs> Happens to <laughs> me too. I I find the early morning hours to be the best time for writing. Yeah, for me it's late night, but that's kind of the that's that's the other side of the same coin because, you know, once once my family's asleep, my kids are in bed, and it's like the house gets quiet and it's it's easier to get in touch with um, how I feel and what's coming through me and let those thoughts and everything kind of flow, get into the flow. Really, um, the house is kind of so busy <laughs> from the moment I get up. That morning meditation is difficult to make space for but there's always space in the evening mm-hmm. so i i treasure i treasure that time that late night time Beautiful. but then i'm a night owl too so that works for me i guess if i was a um habitually woke up early in the morning it would probably feel very similar uh-huh. Uh-huh. well it's difficult to uh, be a night owl when you're a mother <laughs> so congratulations yeah so. <laughs> To each their own, right? No, we make it work. Um, life, life is always in, in flux, but um, yeah. Being a mother is one of the great joys of my life. Um, and I'm kind of amazed that I find time for anything else. But uh, but you got to follow what's in your heart, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You wrote about the, the conference that you went to um, with Charlie Garfield and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and that you described them as fully alive and fully human beings deep with deep compassion, profound honesty and extraordinary willingness to look at the most difficult aspects of life and death, how we can use these difficult experiences in order to learn how to live. And I read that and I think it really clicked for me that I think that's the underlying thread of what draws me to people, right? That's exactly what drew me to Ram Dass. It was that extraordinary willingness to look at the most difficult aspects of life. And if if that was culturally the norm, I think it would be really transformative. Um, but we may not be born into a culture that gives us these messages, but but there are certainly teachers um, that are that are here to share that. I'm grateful for your teachings. I'm grateful for your books. I'm grateful for your experience that brought this to us. And it really seems like there was it was part of the awakening of the 60s and 70s that we started looking at life and death and suffering a little bit differently. I I think that's kind of so amazing because. Um, I didn't even know you guys were all friends. You know what I mean? Like, 
uh, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, transcendentalism, where there was this group, it was a fairly small group of people that got together, but made a big impact on kind of a, a new way of, of seeing things. So, yeah. so but think what's it been like to be part of that? What's it been like to be part of it? Uh, it's been mostly grace, you know, hmm. mostly, um, you know, all of the things that happened in the 60s, it was pretty wild, but it was so creative and such a an amazing awakening. And, you know, one of the things I remember just revisited recently was uh, Paul McCartney talking about a song that uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys wrote called God Only Knows. And Paul said it was the most beautiful song he's ever heard. And he's written a lot of beautiful songs himself. But he said that <laughs> song never fails to cause him to cry. And, and when he hears it, he has the thought, my goodness, how did we get that good? And where did it go? <laughs> because there, whatever that creative thing was that was happening in the 60s and a little bit into the early 70s, but it did kind of dissipate. And maybe it was just, you know, you can't sustain it because um, a lot of it was fueled by psychedelic drugs and uh, caused a lot of people like Brian Wilson to have really serious mental problems. It's like forcing your way into a heaven realm when you're not really prepared for it. So. So it was a mixed blessing in that sense, you know, it was, it was incredibly uh, rejuvenating and vitalizing to, to be a part of it, but realizing that we lost a lot of people along the way and um, that whatever it was, that was a blip on the screen of the evolution of consciousness, but it's manifesting now, you know, Nadia, I mean, what you're doing, um, so many younger people so drawn into this. You know, sometimes I sit down and I, I'm speaking to someone who's like in their late teens or early 20s. I'm thinking, how do they know all this now? You know, this is amazing. <laughs> but that's what I meant when I said, I, I really think that, you know, whether you subscribe to reincarnation or not, it does seem to me that there are souls who come into this life who are much more attuned to just yearning for truth, you know, and, and recognizing mm -hmm. it when they see it and hear it and feel it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's been, yeah, there's, Go I was ahead. just going to say, it's been an amazing journey and I'm very grateful for it. And I think the same thing, you know, like, uh, how did I get to hang out with Ramdas? You know, how did I get to hang out with Wayne <laughs> Dyer, <laughs> Stephen mm -hmm. Levine, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Kubler-Ross? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. It just all kind of happened organically. Your paths aligned. It seems like there was kind of this pilgrimage to the East, looking for answers to the things that didn't sit right with us here. Like there's got to be another way. So I feel like 
so many brave souls ventured out to try and find answers or another way or somebody's got to know what's going on. I know in terms of psychedelics, um, Ramdas had talked about that, like they had read the Tibetan Book of the Dead and they're trying to like find this roadmap of what is it that we stumbled on here uh, with the psychedelics and, and what does it mean and, and how do we navigate this? They're like, somebody must know which he tried to ask Maharaji and <laughs> yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he quite got the answer he thought he was coming for but but there's these ripples from that that we've um, brought a different way of looking at things you know like you said hospice is now a thing yeah. meditation who who hasn't heard of meditation and mindfulness that I don't even you know it was not that long ago that it wasn't part of the, the, the cumulative consciousness, you know, yoga, there's yoga everywhere. Like all of these things that sort of emerged out of that time, I think the ripples are still there. And like they say, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So you find people of all ages today that are feeling something and they're like, there's got to be another way they come across something. They have a lot of answers. I know a lot of um, young people, especially are, are finding be here now and, uh, you know, tuning in to, to Ram Dass's work and, and really just kind of looking to find a way to maybe even just be more at harmony with what we are or see what we are. So yeah. I definitely see it continuing. It's not quite the same landscape as it was before, um, but it's still here. I mean, it, it made it didn't transform the world like maybe people thought it would, but it did make big changes that we have not seen the end of. Well, you know, I was writing, you know, the, I have two other books that I wrote too. Uh, this one, uh, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, which is called The Sacred yes. Path to Healing All Relationships. And uh, When Prayers Aren't Answered. And it's opening the heart and quieting the mind in challenging times. And this book, mm -hmm. uh, when I was writing it, it started to dawn on me that the the world does this thing of kind of getting better and worse at the same time. And I think it's just the polarity of the energies, you know? It's like, uh, you know, one of the things that's so evident in our culture now is political polarities, right? And, and you know, not to take one side or the other, but simply to note sort of the principle of physics, which every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you pull really hard in this direction, this direction is going to get pulled really hard too. And um, that's why one of the interesting things about the East is cultivating this, this equanimity and centeredness mm. so that you're not so attached. You know, you may be identified with one side or another. I mean, to me, I want to be identified with the side that's more loving, if there is a side. And that mm -hmm. means giving mm -hmm. love to everybody. So, uh, you know, it's a, you talk to the great teachers like the Dalai Lama, you know, he always says, keep talking to each other. Don't stop talking to each other. You know, don't say your beliefs are so reprehensible, I won't even acknowledge that you exist. No, find your mm -hmm. common ground. Find the places where you can meet. You know, one of my friends a few years ago was talking about how she had this big rift 
with her neighbor, next door neighbor, who she dearly loved for years, and they got always got along, and then they got into this political argument. Now they're not speaking to each other. She said, what do I do? I said, you know, you bake really good cookies. Bake some cookies and take them some cookies. <laughs> you know, something just simple like that, just so that we can keep mm-hmm. connection to one another and hold to our principles, hold to what we know is right, and go toward the light, as the Tibetan Book of the Dead always said. Just keep going toward the light. Mm-hmm. We can send lo- love to those that we disagree with. In fact, that's where our work is. I love that Ramdas would put pictures on his puja table of people that really irked him, that's that right. was really difficult for him <laughs> to love. So it would remind him so he could say good morning to all of them and try try to try to be as loving to to the people he disliked as the people that he naturally loved. Um, I mean, even Jesus said that, right? Sure. The yeah. to to love everyone. So. Um, that, I mean, that's the heart of the practice. That's the heart of all of our practice. I can't think of anything deeper than that. And I know Ram Dass, um, towards the end of his life, his his mantra was um, about loving awareness. I am loving awareness. I am loving awareness. And uh, I think it just, if if you can take nothing else from his teachings, but to become that embodiment of loving awareness that it would solve so many of the things that we think are problems in our lives. Yeah. So he wrote the forward. Sorry, go ahead. I just said so true. I was agreeing with you. Yeah. Uh, He wrote the forward to one soul, one love, one heart, uh, the book that you just brought up. And uh, just a piece of that says, When I read this book, I feel like it is coming from my own heart. John eloquently and elegantly puts into words the concepts that I have been teaching and working with on my own journey for many, many years. Yeah. (laughs) I once was sitting with him on Maui and I said, uh, we were talking about the book and it was, I think, during, while he was writing the foreword. And... uh, he was telling me how much he liked it. I said, well, I stole it all from you. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's why it feels so familiar. <laughs> this is great stuff, Ramdas. I'm going to put it all in my book. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. But I, I did it openly and, and with great respect. Oh, yes, of course. Um, so I before we leave today, I wanted to leave everybody with one final thought and it is the final paragraph from Dr. Wayne Dyer's introduction to Awakening from Grief. It says, Awakening from Grief by John E. Welshons will help you to heal your heart and rediscover your infinite inner resources. If you honor the spirit of this book, eventually you will come to know in your deepest intuition that everything that has happened in your life has happened not to make you eternally sad, but to help you recognize that you are eternally loving, eternally joyful, and eternally at peace. May God bless you on your own inner journey of awakening from grief. Dr. Wayne W. Dyer. Oh, wow. So sweet to hear that. (laughs) 
I'm grateful for Dr. Dyer. I'm grateful for Ram Dass. I'm grateful that you came into my life when I needed it. This book um, operates like uh, like offering a hand of kindness to someone in their darkest hour. And uh, what a personal joy for me to sort of come full circle and get to sit here and ask you these great questions about your life and your teaching. So thank you for spending this time with me. Well, thank you, Nadia. And just let me say that, you know, I do a lot of interviews and uh, sitting here for an hour with you has been just glorious, just wonderful. <laughs> thank you for your wonderful questions and comments and your beautiful consciousness. Thank you so much. We meet in the heart space. Yes. 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 And for all our listeners, thank you for following Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life and telling your friends about it. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Namaste. Namaste. To learn more about this podcast, see upcoming events, or book a private reading, you can visit my website at NadiaDelacruz.com. We have a monthly spiritual discussion group, and I would love for you to join us. You can also get the link to my YouTube channel with full video episodes and live recordings from the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community. If you enjoyed this show, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you soon. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.